the economies of scale that multifamily or commercial real estate in general brings far exceeds anything that single family uh, rentals can bring or many other types of investment can bring. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. It is a new year. It's 2018. It's going to be huge, and I'm glad you've all tuned in to learn from our incredible guests, and hopefully these guests will inspire you to go out and take massive amounts of action. This show is for anyone who wants to invest here in the US, not just international investors, but Americans, anyone who wants to place their money here in businesses, real estate, or the like. As you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners on this show, and there's absolutely no BS, just straight into the nuts and bolts. If you do like this show, you can always give us a review on iTunes. It only takes two seconds, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever your podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel, so head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts. You can see my ugly mug, but you can see the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ike Mutabana. Ike is a stay-at-home dad and president of IHM Business Group. Ike used to be a CTO of several startups in Boston's for over a decade. He now lives in Dallas, Texas with his wife and two kids and runs multiple small businesses. Among Ike's business is multifamily syndication, where he educates his friends to join him for investing in apartment communities. He's recently completed two deals, which has raised over $1.5 million as a syndication partner. Collectively, Ike is now an equity partner in over 1,000 apartment units. Ike is also the host of a weekly podcast called The Side Business Show, where he encourages his audience to lead fulfilling lives and build wealth through creating small business ventures. I'm very excited to have him on the show. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Ike. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? I'm doing very well, Reed. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, mate, my pleasure. It's great to have you here. Now, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show, <laughs> let's rewind the clock a little bit and go back and tell us how you made your first ever dollar. And I'm not even talking about real estate. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, um, you know, I'm from a, uh, Reed, I'm from a fellow cricketing nation. I mm-hmm. come originally from India. Fantastic. And uh, I grew up in Bombay. Um, and I think your question was my first dollar. So it wasn't my first dollar, it was my first rupee. Um, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but uh, that was when I was in ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, that was in the um, mid to late 80s. So I'm trying hard not to give you my age. But <laughs> um, the in that period, uh, computers had just started becoming prevalent in India. It was, you know, India's economy had just opened up. There was a lot of uh, excitement around IT and computers. Um, People were just learning what that was at that time. Um, I was fortunate uh, at that point to be able to, um, you know, find some scrap dealers who helped me put together a home-assembled computer uh, for the cheapest possible cost you can imagine. 
And uh, once I did that, now I knew something that nobody on my street knew. So um, people were at that time still trying to understand how this could help them in their work and their business. And I decided I was going to start a coaching class to help people learn that. So I was in ninth grade. Uh, I had a little attic uh, at the top of you know where I lived. And, uh, you know, I said, I'm going to set up a small little desk space there and I'm going to um, go uh, get people to come and, uh, you know, join my classes. I'm going to teach them how to write um, letters on a computer. So, you know, we had softwares like WordStar, really ancient versions of what you call Microsoft Word today. Wow. Um, I was going to help them learn how to use a spreadsheet, which was in that time, it was Lotus 1, 2, 3, which I don't know if. Yes, Any I, of your listeners will be familiar with. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyhow, so I did that. I actually hand wrote my posters because I wanted to save some money. So I, I created the posters. I called myself Intergalactic Computers because I was inspired by Star Trek in those days. Um, and I hand wrote every single poster and went and, you know, handed out those flyers across the street. Um, I got two customers, one of whom actually paid me. And uh, after about three classes, they decided that it was too much for them. Oh, really? So, <laughs> yeah, because here's the problem, right? They would come, they would learn it, but they had no way to practice because computers weren't prevalent yet. Right. And it was just, um, it was sort of a, it was like a fancy calculator for them, um, but with no outlet, no real way to apply it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, it worked. And in three days, I made in my first rupee in that. And that was it. Fantastic. That sounds but, like an incredible yeah. journey to, you know, to, to, to reminisce on those times where there was no computers. There were no computers, I should say. Right. Um, and you being sort of the young entrepreneurial spirit guy that you are, you know, you, you went out and saw that there was an issue. And did you think that the computers would be as big as they are today? Did you, did you get a sense of that? Or yeah. What, 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 what persuaded you to be like, you know what, I need to learn this and, and become a, a master of it and then teach others? No, well, I see, here's the thing, right? My father, he used to run this small store um, where he used to sell ball bearings. And the ball bearings are the, the things you use in all, almost every mechanical device today, mm -hmm. um, from the wheels on your cars and, and gears and everywhere, right? And the way he used to maintain his inventory um, was basically in this ledger sheet where he used to painstakingly every night after coming home from the store, he would make a list of all the you know, inventory that had been sold, the distribution that had come in, all of that stuff going on. And then he would sit and write letters to all of the distributors and suppliers. <laughs> and it just occurred to me that this was far more efficient if this could be done on a computer, especially because now I, I knew how to use WordStar and Lotus 1, 2, 3. Um, so my first attempt was to try and teach him. Um, and actually, you know, he learned it, but the problem is habits are hard to break. Right. So that was my first lesson that habits are hard to break. You know, you need to, um, the value needs to come so massively that for someone to be able to adopt it, that incremental value sometimes is much harder to adopt. I could imagine. Yeah. That's a, that's a fantastic little line. Habits are very hard to break. And, particularly habits where people are unknown, right? You know, the whole idea of learning computers and learning how to do Lotus 1, 2, 3 would be so foreign right. to so many people, particularly the older generation in the late 80s, right. and early 90s, to think that, you know, we can't go anywhere. I'm recording this podcast right now on a computer. Uh, and, you know, 20 years ago, this didn't even exist. Well, 
maybe 30 years ago this didn't exist right so it's such a right. it's such a major leap and and to be to break those habits and to break those traditions and to break those mindsets is is is, is powerful you know and lot, not you get a lot of resistance i could imagine right oh absolutely i mean especially because in those days we didn't have windows what we had was microsoft dos it was this unix style old platform where everything was command driven there was no mouse there was no pointer that you could point and click at stuff so <laughs> it was intimidating right. to say the least right right well we've talked about your past now let's bring the, the clock forward how did you make your transition into the united states and tell us a little bit more about that journey because that's pretty incredible in sure yeah sure so i was um you know i'd completed my undergrad degree in india i was working there and while i was working um what i found was that um, in my final year of undergraduate studies, I had done this research project with two friends. And we, in fact, got our, our paper published in the IEEE local chapter uh, publication. So I had realized that I had an interest in research. I enjoyed learning new things um, and, and being innovative. So while I was at my job, I would continue to do that and caught the attention of uh, a professor in the U.S. Um, who encouraged me to do m much more of that. Um, that eventually led me down to applying to do a master's degree, actually a PhD, which I eventually turned into a master's because, you know, circumstances would not allow me to do all the way to a PhD. But um, that's what brought me into the U.S., uh, where I came here to Cincinnati, Ohio, did a master's degree in uh, electrical engineering. Um, and then eventually, you know, through a lot of transitions, I actually left the U.S. after doing that and went to start a business in Indonesia. And then eventually came back in 2001, and since then I've been in the U.S. Wow, that's incredible! So, you sounds like you've had an incredible journey, and to go from engineering, you know, electrical engineering, a master's in electrical engineering, to go and then start your own business in Indonesia. Talk to, talk right. to me a little bit about that because that's also a very um, major mindset. We talk about breaking habits just earlier, but you know, breaking your habit, and you sound like you're a man of the world to you know what, I'm going to move to in, in Indonesia and just start a business. Like, did you have friends? Did you have family? Did you think about that sort of stuff? Because a lot of people listening to this show wouldn't have, you know, the courage to do that, right? So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, it, it's a little bit of, uh, I think, luck and uh, circumstances, right? Sometimes that, that puts you in certain situations. So after I finished my master's, I was working as an intern um, at this company that was in supply chain management software. And they wanted to start a division in India to, uh, to become the focus consulting area for serving the Southeast Asian and Australian market. And in fact, our company had just found a, a major client in Australia. So in order to be able to serve the region, they decided to uh, create a, an office in India. I needed someone from the U.S. to go and set up the office. And I just raised my hand right away. I mean, it, you know, I knew India. I knew um, how to operate there. And I was always in for adventure. It was, it was early days. Um, I knew I would always learn if I did that. So along with another uh, two people, I got deputed to go back to India, set up an office, and, uh, and serve the Southeast Asian region. And while I was doing that, I encountered an old friend from undergraduate days who had moved to Indonesia to start a consulting firm uh, with, his, uh, with a partner, a very close friend of his, who had married an Indonesian girl. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a nice, interesting connection. But he said, you know what, um, Ike, you got to come down here. This economy is changing and transforming here in Jakarta. And um, it's on the you know cutting edge of the internet. So this is where you can really set up something interesting. I went down to scout the market. 
um, you know, we understood what was going on. We tried to figure out uh, some good opportunities and eventually realized that the biggest opportunity was in e-learning. At, at that time, there was no video streaming um, and almost everything was in the form of these much more what I would call today static portals where you would have these portals where you could upload and download things. Um, but as the, the whole thing was about the workflow, as long as you could create an efficient workflow, you could create value for someone. Right. So we realized that the value we could create was for Indonesian universities who were struggling to serve students outside of their core home base. Because of the fact that Indonesia is an archipelago, they have so many islands that um, while the government was trying to create a fiber optic cable to connect to all these islands, um, education was still functioning in an old style. You know, they had correspondence uh, uh, format where uh, data, their um, coursework and course material and assignments would go by postal mail back and forth across the entire archipelago. Right. So you can imagine very inefficient mm -hmm. uh, as a whole. And we decided, you know what, we could create an e-learning platform where people could upload and download their assignments, just create a workflow for the professors, um, keep it simple, and we'll be able to make this work. Interesting. That's, so, it sounds like you've had an incredible array of experience, um, you know, moving from, Indi uh, from India to the, to the States and back to Indonesia to start really cutting edge and pioneering um, in essentially a third world country or a developing country. It's, it's, it's an incredible journey and, you know, something that you, know, you should probably be very proud of, I could imagine, right? It was fun. It was fun. A lot of learnings out of it. Um, certainly, uh, certainly something that I cherish, you know, right. it's, it's those memories that are amazing. Right, right. So then you moved back to the United States in 2001. What was yeah. the transition to, to move back then at that time? Well, it was the Asian currency collapse. You know, wow. we literally went from... Uh, we had the Indonesia uses a currency called the rupiah, which was mm -hmm. uh, two thousand per dollar, mm -hmm. and overnight it became twenty thousand per dollar. Wow! So the, 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 so the was, value in the Indonesian market. Yeah, the, I mean all of them: the Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam. Mm -hmm. They all just this massive Asian currency collapse. Um, at the same time, there was a dot com bust that happened in Silicon Valley in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So that dried up any sources of potential funding to be able to make that business much bigger. Okay. And, um, and so you moved back to Dallas in particular, or you had moved to somewhere else in the States? No, actually, I first moved to New Jersey. I got, an, I got a job with AT&T. Um, they were rolling out an electronic ordering system for their cable services, yep. and they needed someone with that kind of experience. So that's where I was able to move and, and you know, work with them for a little bit. Eventually moved to Boston, which is where I stayed for about, lived for about 15 years. Okay. Uh, working for a variety of you know marketing and startup companies, mm -hmm. and now you're in Dallas, Fort Worth, in the different part of the country, <laughs> a, a, yeah, a, a, warmer, right. a warmer climate. I could imagine that the uh, people, people, <laughs> sure. in, people in Boston this morning would be not enjoying the result after last last night's uh, Super Bowl. But um, go go the yeah. Eagles, right? <laughs> um, so, <laughs> well, so, I still have my loyalties to Boston, so I'm equally in the uh, <laughs> doldrums with that. <laughs> I see you, you, you're feeling a little bit sorry for yourself this morning i could imagine right i am i am <laughs> um well you've always got to go for the underdogs you know you've got to you've got to go for the i'm, a, I'm an underdog supporter so even though i didn't follow it that much i uh, i did flick it on and, and have a look and was glad to see the eagles did get up um but mate tell me more about your but business they played a tremendous game so kudos to them yeah they sure. did they did play for an absolutely fantastic game 
But mate, tell me more about your real estate business and your you've you've had a clearly a litany of you know like a, a lot of experience in a, different fields and what brought you into real estate uh, investing, particularly here in the United States, and what 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 did it offer that say you know investing in another country would not offer in, in terms of real estate. So here's the thing, right? When I started um, thinking about, I mean, while I was in Boston, I kept you know looking into real estate and you know put my hand into a couple of things, but nothing really panned out because I didn't really understand real estate at a larger scale. Mm-hmm. The first time I understood in, uh, real estate at a large scale was when I moved to Dallas. And in the first year that I moved here, which is about three years ago now, um, I got introduced to Joe Fairless through a common friend of ours. Um, she was, you know, her name was Holly Williams. She worked with me and she and Joe know each other very well. Um, so she introduced me to Joe. I got talking to him and he introduced me to what he was doing at that time. And uh, three years ago, this was still early uh, period for Joe as well. And he had done a few deals, but he was, you know, explaining how multifamily investing worked. I just just got so intrigued. He had a deal that was coming up. I decided to passively invest in his deal. Um, And to be honest, that, that investment that I made was not with as much knowledge as I think I would normally do. Mm-hmm. But it was based a bit on trust and a bit of understanding at a high level how the economics worked. And that deal went so well that I decided to actually start studying it and start understanding it at a much more detailed level. And the one big thing I realized was that number two things. The first thing was that the economies of scale that multifamily or commercial real estate in general brings far exceeds anything that single family uh, rentals can bring or many other types of investment can bring. The second thing is that multifamily is especially unique for me as someone who's come from India is because it doesn't exist in India. Right. That particular type of investment asset does not exist. Yes, you can have office buildings, you can have retail outlet stores, you can have medical buildings, all of that exists. But the concept of a multifamily unit where you have a building or a complex where these are... Um, apartments that are designated for rental units and are managed by professional property managers, that concept just does not exist at all. Whatever exists in India is purely, um, you know, people buy flats and condos and they rent them out individually. So you'll have a building perhaps with, you know, a hundred units and maybe 10 or 20 of them are rental individually by owners. So the, the scale doesn't exist there. And this concept just caught my attention. I was like, I, you know, if, if you put the whole thing together, think about it, right? I mean, you've got, you, you have a hundred units, even if you end up with 10 or 15% vacancy, you still have enough in there in terms of occupancy to be able to make the expenses work as well as to get you the kind of returns that, you know, really would make this whole thing justifiable. So it, I realized very quickly that this is a, an asset type, which is both resilient because of the fact that people always need a place to live. And the, the economies of scale in general make this much more um, profitable to work with and manage. Okay. So, so really, this is what um, you know, turned my head and I said, I need to start looking at this much more closely and start studying it um, and to see if this is something, it's a place where I want to go. And it's interesting that you, uh, and I've spoken about at great length on this show, that you have the same international flavor and feel and outside perspective as I do because, you know, in Australia, like India, multifamily doesn't exist. Like you could maybe buy 
maybe a triplex or maybe a quad, you know, four units. But in general, you couldn't go out and buy 150 units. Um, it's all it's all condos. It's all uh, they do a condo track map, and they um, the way in which the gov- the local government makes money in Australia is through what's called strata title, uh, and that is where they can get taxes off the individual. So if you have 100 units and they're sold individually, then each one of those sales, uh, three or four hundred thousand dollars each, would get taxed, uh, and it's greater than you know the sum of the parts is greater than than the whole, uh, if that makes sense. So, and and one other thing I, which I could imagine. Well, I'm going to ask you: <laughs> Is why do you not think that it's multifamily is available in, in India as 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 it, as it here is in, in the United States? Yeah, I think I, I personally think the biggest reason is the mobility. So people do not move as much in India as they move in the U.S. Okay. Um, and I, the reason I I I know that is because I used to work when I when I was in Boston for my you know uh, for the longest period. I worked for a company that worked very closely with the U.S. Postal Service. And our business was, in fact, uh, marketing to people who are in the moving stage. Mm. And our data showed us that 24 million households move in the U.S. every single year. That translates to approximately 40 million individuals moving in the U.S. every single year. 24 million people moving every uh, households. So that's, that's households. 40, yes, that's 40 million people every year are moving. Just, 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 just domestically, correct? Just within the. the, the just domestic. Yes, we're talking within the U.S. Got it. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, combined with the fact that you have international people moving here as well, right? Like you, you yeah, that's that's a, that's a crazy statistic. Um, what about the financing piece of it in India? You know, like obviously, in my in my mind, or not in my mind, it's the truth that. Multi-family financing streams in Australia commercially are not available on the scale that there are here. Like you don't have Freddie and Fannie. You don't have you know ten or twelve year fixed fixed rate commercial loans. You don't have non-recourse in Australia at all. So there's just a different lending environment, and that means that it's not as prevalent. So is is there a similar sort of situation that happens in in India? You know. Perhaps not. I think it's somewhere in between, somewhere in between what you just said about Australia and what's in the U.S. I think the commercial lending um, opportunities do exist. But the thing is, because the market has no knowledge of multifamily, I think the the lending is very much geared towards really large-scale commercial uh, development. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, it's geared towards development versus purchase, you know, acquisition and uh, hold and, you know, Yep. Um, what we do here often, right? Where we, we buy existing properties and we hold it, we do value add and all of that stuff. That market is sort of a little bit unknown in India. There's, there's a lot of money for development. So there are development companies, there's uh, you know, financing um, agencies as well as private groups that completely focus on funding builders and developers to build brand new stuff. Right, interesting. Um, or to redevelop, to tear down and redevelop. Mm. But not much as much as what we see in terms of the most stable market that we see in the U.S. Yeah, and in my my mind, again, my mindset on that is that it starts with the the how and the why in which governments approve certain projects, right? So if you have a government that is uh, or a lo- local municipality that gets their taxes and fees from strata title or or not allowing, you know, to build a whole just from a business point of view, if you don't have um, if you can't hold the entire asset, so you build 100 units from scratch, 
uh, and the financing is not there to support the buy and hold strategy, then you're forced down a road of, 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 of building condominiums to pay the taxes of the local municipality or whatever that might be. And then combined with the fact that you don't have the financing tracks in place to support that type of business model. And hence why, and it sounds very similar in, in India, that why you just, there's a lot of buy, you know, buy, develop, sell, and that's it. And they make their money, do it again. And so they're in and out with like in two or three years um, from, from soup to nuts. Um, but but we, we could talk about a whole a whole the risk pro, uh, profile of buying, doing de- ground up development versus doing a, a value add right, stabilized right. asset, right? There's actually one more reason which uh, which inhibits the, the the acquisition concept of where you acquire existing stable properties mm-hmm. is because of the fact that land costs in India are extremely high. Yes, I mean yes. in dollar terms they may not seem high, but in 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 local um, cost of living terms, they are extremely high, and especially in a, in a city like Bombay, which is a which is a small island. Um, real estate is is so crazily expensive that um, the economics simply does not work to be able to create a multifamily housing uh, you know complex right. which you can hold and recover that money. You simply can't. So tell me, the what, only we can do this by selling it off. Right, and so tell me about the type of you know, cap, cap, cap rates in India, what, what do you think that would be compared to the United States here? Uh, oh. <laughs> they're, they're compressed, I, I would, right? They'd be, have I, to be compressed. They're compressed. They're dramatically compressed. I mean, I, I can't even, I've never even tried to uh, do that estimate, but if I had to just completely ballpark out of thin air, just um, knowing the kind of real estate prices that exist in India, especially in a place like Bombay, I think we would be talking of like, Maybe one or two percent. Yeah, that's what I thought, and it's exact. Yeah. As soon as you said high land prices, that's exactly what I thought about Australia. And then you can make comparables to what I like to call tier one cities here in the United States. So, you know, you right. we, have, we have very compressed cap rates in Los Angeles, in Boston, in New York, uh, maybe on, exactly. the, on 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 Manhattan. You'd probably have in in and around right. two or two to three percent. Um, but again, when you're having cities like these Dallas, Fort Worths, and the San Antonios, and the Charlotte, North Carolinas, where you can get five or six percent cap rate, that's so yeah. crazily good, you know, for us internationals that come here and think, "Wow, you can get a five percent cap rate," and people think, "Oh, five percent exactly. so compressed." And it's like, well, hang on, compared to where we come from, you know, land, where land's very expensive, um, right. you, you, your cap rates are, are through, you know, are so compressed. As I said, like in the in the the single digit one to two percent, so it's really really incredible. Right. And so, for everyone listening out there, the reason why I can myself, we've just got a different perspective on what is is available around the world. And that helps us you know, evaluate deals with a, just a slightly different rose-tinted glasses when we're looking at these deals and sort of what we what I like to call tier two cities, you know, the, 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 the Texas, the San Antonio's, the Kansas cities, right. the Phoenixes, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, you can get similar comparables to um, the, uh, you know, like to LA's and New York's and Boston's uh, in our home countries. But the fact right. is that, you know, that's why there's a lot more development. Land prices in those tier one cities, the coastal cities, are, are through the roof. Same like Australia and India. So think of Australia right. and India like it's a completely a tier one market across the entire country, right? I think that's a good analogy, correct? 
Yeah, I think so. It sounds perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell me more about what you've got planned for for twenty eighteen in terms of, and I want to get into your 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 business, which is um, you, you know, it sounds like you have a, a, a ton of businesses, but you also want to get into your podcast. But for multifamily acquisitions, what are your plans for twenty eighteen and beyond? So, for multifamily acquisition, I think we've got uh, pretty modest uh, plans for this year. Last year, I you know participated as a syndication partner. Um, with another major firm, and we did two deals with them. Um, this year, my goal is to try and expand that. I want to be able to raise about $5 million um, across the deals that I do. And uh, from these, probably one deal um, is my hope is that we'll find it in a area that is not as compressed because what is happening, is even in places in Texas, mm-hmm. um, in the DFW area, in, in certain parts, um, cap rates are getting compressed. So as long as we can find deals that are stable, that are not overly priced and which um, still make the value add component make sense, mm-hmm. um, I'm hoping to get at least one major deal of that type as well as partner up to get you know two or three other deals um, that you know overall can and perhaps bring in uh, where I can bring in about five million dollars in syndication funds. And uh, and distribute them across. And are you acting as a educator and a sort of a conduit for Indian investors in India to to place money here in the United States? You know, I've started doing that, Reed. Um, I have not done much of it yet, but that is one of my goals this year for sure. Right. Um, because one of the things that I realized, in fact, even speaking with you uh, last year about this, is that there seem to be a few complications of bringing in money from from outside of the U.S. into the U.S. Particularly when and, it comes to India, right? Because there's restrictions. Exactly, because right. there's restrictions on how foreign exchange, you know, can be uh, pulled out of India and invested, and they're not as as uh, restrictive as they used to be. Mm-hmm. But some capital controls do exist. Right. So I think uh, there would have to be some mechanism by which um, you know people in India can um, set up some kind of entity through which they can invest in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and and that entity should be you know ha- have the ability to be able to have a bank account and in the sort of logistical things have to be in place for it to work out. Right. So I think one of my goals is to, to work those kinks out, figure out what the, um, the best, easiest, and of course, legal means are to make this work and then start encouraging my you know, friends and, and family and, and larger networks in India to get involved as well. Because this is an opportunity, uh, while in India people make a lot of money in appreciation, the reality is appreciation comes and goes. Mm-hmm. You never know, you know, when, um, I, I own properties in India, I know I know that when I bought them, the uh, the market was really in a, in a, you know, upswing. And then since then, a bunch of things have happened that have sort of flattened the market and the Indian rupee has gone down in value against the dollar, which has sort of, whatever appreciation I got has gone out the window because of the Forex. Right. Um, depreciation. So that issue, unfortunately, creates a real difficulty if you're investing outside the U.S. But for for Indians or any other country, um, you know, nationals to be able to invest in the U.S., the U.S. dollar tends to, has historically retained a lot of strength, mm-hmm. even when there have been ups and downs. Um, it's generally a safe bet. Right. So yeah. it's Go a good focus this year for sure. Yeah. No, I think you. Have got an incredible niche there because 
you know, I deal with a lot of international investors from Western countries and the foreign exchange isn't an issue. There's no restrictions for Australian investors to bring money into the United States, for Kiwi investors, for people in England right. or Europe. So it's, it's pretty straightforward, uh, to be honest. Um, I would love it if you, you know, have you back on the show once you do work out all those kinks because I do have a lot of, you know, clients right. from China, uh, even South Africa uh, and India, uh, just to name a few, where these countries, these governments have put restrictions on how much capital they can take with out of their countries into the United States. And um, the reason right. that people do that, right, it, as you know, is through stability of currency, which is a major issue, um, but also the threat of, you know, particularly some, some of the, the, the Asian countries where the governments can come and, you know, take the money from their citizens. So they want to get the money out of their country into a stable asset. Now, if they can do that, and get a bit of cash flow at the same time, then, hey, it's a win-win-win for everyone, right? So um, true, I'd, true, I'd, yeah. love, I'd love to have you back on the show in a few months' time once we figured it out and we can talk a little bit more about the in-depth details of all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Well, mate, I want to get into your um, what you've been developing over the last little while, which has been pretty incredible, your, your show, which is called The Sign Business Show. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And, and so tell me, what, what, what encouraged you to do to do this and what does your show focus on? The main reason I, I decided to start this show is I found that a lot of my friends, a lot of people I know over the years, um, you know, a lot of people, many people have a desire to become entrepreneurial. That is, I think, an innate human desire for almost everybody, right? You read about a successful entrepreneurs, you read about all the successes in startup industries and you, everyone wants to feel like they're in charge of their own destiny. Um, the reality though is that for the vast majority of people, leaving their jobs, you know, leaving their stable, you know, what they consider to be a stable environment in terms of financial input um, and, and jumping into something that looks as risky as a business is a really hard thing to do. Right. And over the years, what I've realized is that the one thing that can provide a pathway into entrepreneurship without taking on a massive risk is the concept of a side business. In fact, interestingly, from the research I've done, read. Uh, your fellow countrymen in Australia are leading the world in that. In, um, in entrepreneurialism? You have in side business entrepreneurialism. Ah, right. um, 24% of Australians have a side business. Wow. The That's largest incredible. proportion of any country. Um, the US is next at 15%. Only fifteen percent so, of people. That's crazy. Like, it's it's funny. Sorry to interrupt, but I just I get yeah. so you know. Obviously, you and I we surround ourselves with very like minded people. And if you to look at my Twitter feed or my Facebook Twitter feed or whatever, even my Instagram feed, everyone who I seem to surround myself with has a side business or or, or a hustling or doing something. So right. to, to hear it's only fifteen percent is kind of shocking. I would have thought like in my in my bubble at least it's it's nearly a hundred percent, right? So uh, but sorry, <laughs> I, I interrupted you. It's 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 kind of it's it's an no, interesting no. statistic. You're absolutely right, and, and that's the that's the interesting part, right? That uh, the problem is that. Um, I think a lot also depends on how you define a side business, right? Mm -hmm. I define a side business as something which is a an income generating activity that you do on a sustained basis that eventually, you know, can, can flower to something bigger. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people are doing side gigs, which is a little bit different. So, you know, I might take up a random project. If I'm a graphic designer, or I have a graphic design skill. I might just take up a random project on the side once in a while. Mm -hmm. And while that can be considered to be a side business, it's not really because it's not sustainable. It's not something that um, gives you a, a repeatable income, something that you can grow over time. 
it's not a real good foray into entrepreneurship. So hmm. I don't particularly know what the um, the research and the survey that was done, how they exactly define the side business. But if we take a, you know a more generic definition of someone of people who are doing a side business as people who are stepping outside of their comfort zone and generating income from outside, that's what I would consider to be a side business, and, and that's a very low percentage. Right. Um, and, and but I've got I've got a question for you. But surely a side gig would be the the stepping stone to a side business, correct? Sure, it absolutely is. Um, the, the, the question is why you're doing it, right? Right. Um, and if you're doing it with a, a vision that you're going to be able to learn from it, use it, take it forward, then that's great. Um, the problem I have found over the years is that a lot of people do a one-off and then never follow up. Mm-hmm. And the reason they never follow up is because most of the time when they do a side gig, they're trading time for dollars. Yes. Yep. Right where you do something for an hour, for two hours, you charge for that and you're done. When you do that, it becomes exhausting over time. <laughs> and you only have so many hours in a week. Right. You know, you're already working a full-time job. And on top of that, you're trying to take care, perhaps you're take, trying to take care of a family or a relationship or other things. And then trying to grab another five to 10 hours in a week, which you then just trade for dollars, it's not sustainable. So what, what, what advice would you have for people looking to maybe they are starting a side gig, but with the dream mm-hmm. to do a side business. Right. The, the thing I would say is start with whatever you're comfortable with. So there are a few things. Number one is just start, take mm-hmm. action. Don't just think about it. Um, the more you just keep thinking about it and keep planning for it, it'll never happen. So start it. doesn't matter what it is. And that's, Even if it's and that's, trade, assu- and that's assuming yeah. that you know what you want to start, correct? Because a lot of people can sort of, rapid fire spray in any direction with no real, real target in sight. They, but, but you're talking about the people who do have a, a specific niche or whatever it might be that they've already chosen what their side hustle will be, correct? Well, no, not really. Reed. Oh, okay. Actually, you know, yeah, I'm saying that startup doesn't matter what it is. Even, even if, as you said, you know, people just start shooting and trying out, that's okay. Because the, the key, however, is not to get so attached to what you're doing that you don't allow yourself to evolve and change mm-hmm. over time. So you might just start off, you know, randomly, you might just say, oh, that catches my fancy. Let's, let me start that. Just go ahead and do it. The, the key is to see how you do, see what your pain points are as you do it, and then realize if that is something you want to continue or not. Right. Um, realize if there's a way you can evolve it, change it. You know, if you're, all you're doing is trading time for dollars, you need to start figuring out how you can stop doing that and instead start leveraging that time to build something bigger. Um, if, you're, if you find that you're really good, for instance, you know, let's say I just take the same example of a graphic design person, right? The person starts doing some graphic design projects. At some point, once you start realizing that you're good at it, that you're getting the customers, start figuring out what your strengths are. Is it only the graphic design aspect of it? In that case, perhaps that may not be sustainable as a business that you can grow. But if you find that there are other aspects of running that business that you're good at, let's say you're good at the customer relationship aspect, um, at being able to understand what the customer win, uh, needs from that graphic design, are able to visualize that design, then what the way you can expand that business is to take yourself up the food chain. Go hire other graphic designers who are good at the design component, and you focus on the visualization, on understanding the customer needs, and start farming it out. Once you start doing that, now instead of working for one customer for one hour, you can work for three customers or four customers for the same one hour. Right, right. And you're, del- right? And you're delegating. And yes, you, 
you start delegating exactly. So you start creating scale. It's all about creating scale over time, but you won't you won't know until you start. Right. You won't know what you're good at. No, and it's also about creating your systems, correct? Like it's 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 about exactly. that that side businesses slash hustles. If you're passionate about it, you know you should. My and my this is my 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 opinion is that it, even if it was to be a it creates an opportunity for you to say you are really good at graphic design, for example, and you right. have, uh, and it is trading time for money, and you st- start to realize, oh my gosh, I've got this other job which I'm not really passionate about. Maybe I should just quit and start this full time, and that in itself is a leap of faith, obviously. Uh, exactly, but it's yeah. also an ability to see that you've proven the market, you've got all these clients, and oh my gosh, I'm now overwhelmed because I've got so many bloody clients. Um, but that's also showing that you can do it, and that it's it, it's a it's a, the way that the world is indicating to you that you need to you know do, give this some more thought. You need to maybe give it more of your time to help you in order to develop the systems, because inevitably. When you think of a side hustle and you, you, you're doing all this work for a client, and then you say, oh, "I've got to throw some, I've got to try and develop systems on top of my work I'm already generating," like that's a lot. Of, it's a lot more work, right? So, it's right. it's it's an evolution of thinking. I think as as much as it is an evolution of money and trading money for time. Would you Would you not agree? No, I think you're absolutely right, Reid. In fact. Um, and I'll give you an example. So most, many of my customers, many of my not customers, sorry, <laughs> I meant my guests on my show, um, they uh, tend to be from the real estate industry just because of the fact that real estate tends to lend itself as a really good side business, right. you know, one you, that you can scale rapidly. Um, but just to give an outside example, uh, one of my guests is um, a lady by the name of Debbie Sardone, who started her side business while she was a stay-at-home mom doing a few small things, cleaning houses. She was cleaning houses for five dollars, uh, you know, an hour, mm-hmm. and rapidly realized that she was really good at assessing what it took to clean a house and teaching others to do it. Over time, she's built up a cleaning coaching service, <laughs> which is a million-dollar service. Wow, million she's a, dollars. She's a multi-million-dollar service where she teaches others how to set up a cleaning business. That's incredible. <laughs> It's it's incredible. You can't even imagine that, right? But, I mean, who, but she but she but she started right. I think that's the, the major thing that you're trying to get across to people is like they've, she she made a start. She tried to make exactly. She, she, she did it to make ends meet, and all of a sudden she found out she had a skill of it. And you just told you just explained to us it is you got to start, you got to find your skill, and then you got to scale it. And there's sort of three steps exactly. steps by the sounds of it. So. Incredible stuff, right? That's, right. De- Debbie Sidehorn is Sidehorn. Is that right? Uh, de- no, Sardon. 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 Got it. Okay. Sardon. Incredible yeah. stuff, mate. Well, and where can people, you know, find out more about this this show if they want to learn? And and I'm sure, like, listen into all of the incredible tales that people have. You know, all your guests are coming onto the show and uh, sharing with your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm available. My it's called the D Side Business Show. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, you know, all the major platforms. Um, and if you want to look at the website, it's the side business dot show. The side business Well, awesome, mate. Well, look, yeah, I've enjoyed my conversation with you today immensely. But I want to wrap up the show with you giving me your top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, what is a daily habit that you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Well, daily habit is to exercise. I mean, I I've, um, I fluctuate sometimes, but I try very hard to try and make sure that I work out 
um, once a day, every day, every day. That's fantastic. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm a huge uh, exercise fiend as well. I think it's a great way to clear your mind. It's a great way to, um, you know, just shut off from the world for a couple of hours or an hour or so, and don't take your phone. I hate like I don't like when I see people at the gym or something, and they're on their phone and they're not yeah. even working out. <laughs> I'm like, oh wow, I've been here for an hour and didn't do much. <laughs> this is easy. What are people whinging about going to the gym for? Is that because you've been on your bloody phone for, for the hour? <laughs> oh mate. But um, and my second question for you is, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? You know, I would have to say that my most influential person has been my father, my late father. Um, he passed away about, uh, you know, two years, a little over two years ago now. Um, and uh, he uh, he was a small businessman um, and it had a very, very hard journey, you know, a, a journey that um, I wouldn't wish on anybody in his, from the time he was born. Um, but um, through pure grit and determination, um, he made it to where most of his family did not, you know, um, and uh, got himself, he was probably one of the first educated people in his entire family. This is despite the fact that he lost his father and mother when he was very young. Um, and uh, everything he achieved was through um, a solid grit and determination and a very calm personality. I wish I could be a calm personality like him. I tend to get excited very quickly. Um, but he has been an inspiration for me in, in almost everything that I've, I've tried to do. Fantastic. I, I, I can hear in your voice that you're, you have a strong family network and it's very important. You know, I just lost my mother, uh, as you know, and I was, uh, yeah, it's, I'm very it, sorry, yeah, yeah, thank you. It's, it's also very important and to take solace of what are priorities in life. And I know family for me is, is a really, has always been a major, um, part of my life and, and a major priority. And, and as much as we love going out, you know, hustling and chasing wealth and all that sort of good stuff without a right. family network or a strong family network. I don't, I don't think it's, there's no, what's the point, you know, you've got to, you've got to live for something, right? So I live for my family. That's really important. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, mate, what is the most influential tool in your business? And it, it, it might not be a physical tool. It could be a piece of software. It could be anything that you use daily or weekly that helps you, you know, move the machine forward. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I think I'm torn between email and Facebook. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, that Facebook was something I actually abandoned for a while, for several years. Uh -huh. um, I completely abandoned Facebook. I got tired of it um, until I discovered that I could actually use it for, um, for, for two things. One is for connecting in a meaningful way with people, mm -hmm. uh, which I initially felt I couldn't because I felt there was a lot of fluff in there. Mm -hmm. But then later I found there's a really meaningful way to also connect and create uh, communities of conversions where you could actually interact with people on a specific topic or on a specific um, objective and share learnings with each other. Right. Once I realized that, it became a much more useful tool. Um, but But by far it's email. I mean, email remains my uh, tool of choice. I, um, while I tend to use it uh, a lot for daily, you know, logistical stuff, obviously, I also find it to be a really good tool to reconnect every once in a while uh, with old friends, with, you know, old contacts and sort of rebuild connections. Great. Fantastic. I, I completely agree with you that Facebook and, and emails are great for marketing and online marketing and stuff that, you know, again, a skill that I haven't, didn't know or you know, when I first started my, my, my business that, but I had to develop over time and it's, it's, it's opened my eyes to the, a world of possibilities that I had no idea existed prior to 
to, right. to developing that skill. Uh, mate, what has been the biggest failure in your career and what did you learn from that career, uh, that failure? Yeah, I think I think probably the biggest failure has probably been the business in Indonesia where um, even though we had a lot of things that were working for us, um, something that, you know, was out of our reach, um, you know, the, the currency crisis that happened that, that caused us to completely collapse. So I think the biggest learning I got out of that was that um, while you cannot predict everything that happens when, when you're doing a business or anything in life for that matter, um, it's important to, to take a look, close look and start having plan B's in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and this especially applies to something like multifamily investments, right? When you're buying an apartment complex, um, you may have a, a plan in place on what you're going to do in terms of a value add, in terms of um, you know, being able to manage the expenses of the, of the complex and how you're going to manage the property manager and all of that stuff. But the reality is, if things change, let's say the market, market softens, let's say there's a, a recession that happens, or let's say for whatever reason, the economy, the local microeconomy changes a little bit, which impacts the amount of rents you can get, your vacancies go up. Um, you can't obviously um, plan for every single thing, mm-hmm. but if you can plan for a couple of worst cases um, and have some kind of uh, mechanism built into your underwriting in your in your financial planning that can deal with those things keep it conservative that can really help you stay afloat and, and get through those bad periods wow but no it's incredible and and i think that's you you bring up so many experiences that i think you are such a valuable um you know person to speak with because you again you have those vast arrays of experiences internationally as well that you bring to your businesses now that you can be so much more conservative with your outlook and you know you can be more picky and choosy about the type of business adventures that you do get into um, in order to, to reduce risk and to create a great life for your family so it's been incredible thank you um, one last thing I think we already touched on it earlier but let's for all those people who didn't have a pen and paper where can people reach you to continue the conversation Oh, sure. Yeah. So they can reach me um, through my podcast show. It's called uh, the side business dot show. And if you want to write to me, um, my email is Ike, that's I-K-E at the side business dot show. Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. Well, mate, I want to thank you so much for joining us today uh, and dropping by. I want to enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me, Reid. My pleasure. Well, I just want to quickly summarize some of the big things that I learned from today's show. And I think that the, the three big takeaways for me were, you know, obviously start action with your side business, create a, create a skill, and then from creating a skill, scale a business to be or scale a side business to create uh, your major business that can help you, you know, towards financial freedom. I think another really interesting statistic was that only 15% of people have a side business here in the United States, which is really incredible. And Aussies are leading the charge at 25%. So Aussie, 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 right? <laughs> but make sure you, <laughs> did I leave anything out there, Ike? No, I think you're on target. Fantastic, mate. Well, I want to tell you, all my all my listeners, make sure you do check out the summary of today's conversation with Mike. It will be up on my website at readgooses.com. Just remember to click on the podcast tab. Thank you again for taking some time out of your day to tune in and continue to grow your financial knowledge here on this show because that's what we're all about. We're going to do this all again next week, so take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing.